You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. Just put your hand up nice and high or holler at them. My career as a parenting consultant ended November 12, 2008. I used to give unsolicited uh, parental advice. I was quite, uh, I was an expert actually at parenting until November the 12, 2008, which was uh, the day our first son was born. And um, ever since that point, and now we've, we've now got four boys, it's true, four boys, pray for my wife. Um, it's just, been, it's just been one lesson after another. One thing that I thought I knew about parenting, one thing I thought I knew about kids. I mean, I was a camp counselor, Sunday school teacher. I thought I knew kids in and out, and it's just been one humbling moment after another. And the one thing that I wasn't really ready for was how much brothers uh, fight against one another. And I, I'm looking at some people here. I grew up with, with lots of brothers. This is a sort of... You, you, you grew up knowing this, but I grew up with two older sisters, which was kind of like growing up with a mom and then two other moms. And, uh, and so, and they, they were the definition of sweetness. Uh, we never disagreed, never fought, anything like that. And now here I am. I come home after being at the church office and, and, uh, and all of a sudden just erupting out of nowhere the words that are being said, the screaming that is happening, the punches that are being thrown, and I just have no category for that. It's so outside of my experience and understanding. And what I really wasn't ready for is what seeing my kids argue with one another is what it actually does to my heart. It literally breaks my heart every time I see them yell at one another or tackle and try to kill one another. Because here I am, I love my son, and I love my other son. And, and when they are not loving each other, something just happens in the heart of a father. There's this desire to see that the children that you love, that they would love one another. And that it really is God's heart for us. That God, our Father, who calls us to be disciples of his Son, that he wants us to love one another as he loves us. And it breaks his heart when he sees us not loving one another as we should. And so when we come to John chapter 13, Jesus is going to uh, explain for the disciples how important loving one another is. Now the setting of John 13 is, it's the Thursday night before Good Friday, and it is, the, it is the, the, the time in which Jesus has just washed their feet and Judas has just walked out the door to make the arrangements for Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And so these are the final moments that they're sharing together in the upper room and Jesus says to them in John 13 verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. 
By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, Jesus, when he calls us to follow him, which is what this series is all about, is that he does call us individually. He does call us as an individual. We all need to make a personal, individual decision to follow Jesus, but Jesus never intended us to follow him alone. And the title for today's message is The Community of Discipleship, that we are called upon to be a community of love. And one of the ways that that it's going to be clear that we are a disciple, Jesus says, is if we have love for one another. And Jesus is going to lay out for us three things here about the importance of why we should love one another. Here's the first one, that when we love one another, we're obeying Jesus' command. When we love one another, we're obeying his command. He's Lord. We're his disciples. We need to do what he says. And he says, I command you, I give you a new command that you love one another. Jesus doesn't give suggestions. He doesn't give tips. He doesn't give principles for us to consider. He doesn't give suggestions. He gives commands. And he is commanding us that we would love one another. Now some people would say, you know what, this is, this is really what what the Christian church should be teaching. This idea of loving. And we, don't need to, we need to stop talking about Jesus being the son of God and heaven and hell and sin and death and all of those things. Why can't we just have some positive messages? Why can't we just talk about love more often? Why does it even matter that Jesus is God? I mean, every other religion says that love is important. Why can't we just forget God and keep love? Everyone likes love. No one wants to disagree with love. Let's just forget God and let's just keep love. you You can't really have it both ways. Listen to what Timothy Keller, how he reasons this out. He says, if this world was made by a triune God, which is what Christians believe, the triune God, that's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God in three persons that have eternally existed, If the world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really about. That because, that's why it says that God is love, because God exists as a trinity, and the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there has been love within the Godhead for all of eternity. But then he expresses the alternative. He says, if there is no God, if we are here by blind chance, strictly as a result of natural selection, then what you and I call love is just a chemical condition of the brain. If you feel love, it's only because that combination of chemicals enables you to survive and gets your body parts in the places they need to be in order to pass on the genetic code. That's all love is, chemistry. But if from all eternity, without end and without beginning, ultimate reality is a community of persons knowing and loving one another, the Trinity, then ultimate reality is about loving relationships. When when two people love one another and choose to get married and the emotion that's involved in that moment and all of the joy and all of the overwhelming feeling that goes along with that, That is a result of the ultimate reality of the universe. That is out of the overflow of who God is. If you take God out of the equation, that's just a chemical reaction. 
so that our species would survive, that the love that a parent has for his child and, and desiring to protect and nourish and care for, all that is is just for the survival of the species. There's nothing deeper. And yet why is it that when we write love songs, we don't talk about chemical reactions? Why is it that we always say, I will love you forever? I will love you into eternity why is it that whenever we talk about love here on earth, we always talk about something beyond? And that's because love points to something beyond. It points to God. And so when Jesus says, I command you to love one another, he is saying that as God, as the God who loves us, as the ultimate foundation of reality, why this world exists. You can't have it both ways. You can't get rid of God and keep love. Because God is is love, and love flows from who God is. Love within the Christian community is so important, especially within the context of this series. The last time I spoke, I talked about the conflict of discipleship. And the reason why the loving community of discipleship is so crucial is because the conflict of, of discipleship is so right in our face. The passage in Matthew 10, Jesus said, you will be hated by all men. And so if there's hatred out there, all the more reason why there needs to be love in here. And all the more reason why we as Christians need to live in a loving community. And so there's hatred out in the world and there is supposed to be love within the church. Now, there's a pretty big difference, a pretty big span between loving someone and hating someone. Now, we all agree that we fall short of this command. Am I the only one who falls short of loving? I, I, I'm sure a few of us would admit that, yeah, some of us, a couple people in the front row don't love. You all, you all are just so loving people over here. But we all fall short of this command. But the alternative isn't always hating. It doesn't mean that every time you fall short of loving someone that you necessarily are hating them. There's a, there's a lot of stages in between. And so... Here are five things that we do when we're not loving one another. Here's the first one. Here's the thing that happens in the church when we're not loving each other. We start judging each other. We start judging each other. How well do they know their Bibles? How do they dress? How much money do they make? How's this going? How's that going? And then based on our judgment, we either feel self-righteous because we're better than them or we feel self-pity because we're worse than them. And so when we're not loving, chances are we're judging. Here's the next one. If we're not judging, chances are we're envying. We see that they have something or they have some relationship or some gift or some opportunity and we're jealous. We have envy for what they have rather than being happy for them, rather than loving them and saying, good for them. We get bitter in our own soul and filled with envy. Here's another one. We're fearing one another. So concerned about what other people think about us and how we're coming across and whether people like us or appreciate us or affirm us and we start just being so afraid of, of coming across wrong and trying to put on the show for people so that everyone can like us because we're so afraid of being rejected. Here's one of, the, one of the worst ones we're all guilty of when we're not loving is using people. How can I step over this person or step on this person in order to get what I want? And sometimes it's getting from them something that I want. 
to satisfy our own, our own lusts or our own desires or our own ambitions, using one another. And then the last one is avoiding one another. Some of us have been so fed up with one to four, things that we've done to others and things that others have done to us. So the, the church and Christians are so judgmental. And I, I'm, just, I, 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 I'm just so filled with envy. I can't believe how everyone else's life is going so great and mine's so bad. And, and, and I'm just going to avoid them. I'm tired of trying to please people and I'm tired of people using me and I know I've used people so you know what, I'm just going to go off and live the Christian life by myself, me and a couple of podcasts and my study Bible and I'm not going to bother with any other Christians. I'm going to avoid them. And this is what so many of us fall into. But Jesus tells us that we are supposed to love one another. And he tells us again and again that we can't live the Christian life on our own. A Satan is a wolf, and we are sheeps. Sheep. Grammar check. And Satan would love to devour us. He doesn't always get the chance to. And if he can't devour us, he settles for dividing us. If he, can't, if he can't devour you as a Christian, if he can't destroy you, he will try to put a division between you and your brothers and sisters. That's his aim. That's why Jesus is commanding this. That's why it's so important. But Jesus says something surprising at the beginning of the verse. He says, this is a, this is a new commandment. How is this new? I mean, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, like, love your enemies. So if you're going to love your enemies, of course you're going to love one another. And Jesus said in the, in the great commandment that we have up here on the banner to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So clearly loving one another fits in with loving our neighbor. Why is it new? And when Jesus was talking about loving our neighbor, he's quoting Leviticus 19.25. I mean, that's really old. That's not new, Jesus. Here's how it's new. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. It's an old command, but with a new standard. That we are to love one another the way that Jesus had loved us. Jot this down, that we're following Jesus' example. When we love one another, we are following Jesus' example. Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet. He had just humbled himself and taken, taken on that role of a servant for them. And so they were thinking, man, that just happened. When he says love as I just love you, they were thinking, that's huge. I, I don't know if I could ever do that. And so because of the context, they're thinking this is, a, this is a significant change in the standard for what it means to love people. But think about what's gonna happen in the next 24 hours. Jesus is gonna suffer and die on the cross. He's gonna be crucified. And when Jesus says, love as I has loved you, it's in the context of what's about to happen over that weekend where Jesus is going to suffer and die and be raised again. That is our standard for loving one another. No more comparing ourselves to seeing if we're more loving than other people. Rather, we're supposed to compare ourselves to Jesus and what he has done for us. He is our example. How did Jesus love us? How did Jesus love us? Here's the first way he loved us. He made a choice. When Jesus loved us, he made a choice. Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five says that Jesus, together with the Father, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose, he made a choice 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. This is the kind of love. It was a love that predestined. Predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Three choosing words. He chose, he predestined, and according to the purpose of his will. Jesus chose to love you. Now those of, those of you like me who really resonate with Reformed theology, see it as biblical, see it as true, most people who delight in the sovereignty of God and predestination and election, you see these as scriptural principles as I do, most of us are comfortable with the idea that Jesus chose to save us. What we don't always recognize is that Jesus chose to love us. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between him just who's, yeah, I'll save you. Yeah, just get over there. You can have eternal life. Yeah, I'll save you. There's a huge difference between that and reaching down and saving us and then embracing us and showering love upon us. And he predestined us before the foundation of the world he made this choice. Knowing everything about you everything about you. That Jesus Christ looked down on my life together with the Father, the Holy Spirit, that they, that they chose me and they were consciously aware, knowing everything from beginning to end. They knew Ted Duncan at his most sinful, at his most selfish, at his absolute lowest depraved state. And they said, I choose to love him. Not I choose to love some future, new, improved, sanctified version of him. Not that I choose to save him and just tolerate him. No, I choose to love him. And God has looked down on all of us and has made a choice. I choose to love these ones. So Jesus made a choice. And listen, when we love, we are to make a choice. Some of us are waiting for Christians to become more lovable once they become more lovable, we'll start loving. Some of us are waiting for our families to become less dysfunctional, and then we'll start loving our family members. Some of us are waiting for our friends to be a little less needy, and then we will start loving them more intentionally. No, you need to make a choice. You need to make a choice that right here, as they are, for better or for worse, I am choosing to love this person. If we're going to love as he loved us, we need to love recognizing that Jesus chose to love us and that we need to choose to, others, choose to love others. So he, he made a choice. Here's the second thing he did. He took a step. He took a step. Jesus didn't stay up there in heaven and say, yeah, I choose to love these people. Look at them down there. Love them so much. Love them. Just feeling lots of loving feelings, to thinking loving thoughts about them right now. No, Jesus took a step. His love caused him to take a step that's described in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus 
took that first step of emptying himself and becoming a human and becoming a servant and then dying. So many steps that he took, but it started with one step in the same way that we need to take a step. It's not just enough for us to say, I choose to love someone or I feel a certain way or I think certain thoughts. It requires action. Second Corinthians 5 says, the love of Christ compels us. It controls us. It's leading us to take Action. Jesus' love for us caused him to take action to rescue us. And so Jesus loved us by taking a step. We need to love one another by taking a step towards one another. How else did Jesus love us? He paid a price. He paid a price. Colossians 2.14, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He paid the price. He paid our debt. And how did he pay that debt? By nailing it to the cross, by suffering and dying for us. If we're going to choose to love the way that Jesus has loved us, we need to know that he has loved us in such a way that it cost him. And that if we are going to love others, then we need to know it's going to cost us. People aren't always going to react in the same way. People aren't always going to reciprocate by, because we love them, now they're going to love us back. People might not even say thank you. People might not even notice. People might even res- respond to our love with actual hatred. But we are to pay the price. As Jesus paid the price for us. How was Jesus able to take to take that step? How was he able to pay that price? How was he able to make that choice? Well, simple. He was so secure in the love that he had with his father. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The reason why he's not grasping it is because he already had it. He was one with the father. He knew who he was. He knew his identity. He was so satisfied with the love within the Trinity that he was able to pour himself out. That's how Jesus was able to love us. How are we to love one another? By making those choices and taking those steps and paying those prices by knowing that we are loved by God. Until you know that you are loved by God, you will never be able to love others the way Jesus wants us to. It has to come as an overflow of what he has done in our own life. Our security, our identity, our purpose, our meaning in life does not come from how loving we are. Our meaning, our security, our purpose comes from how loving God is. And we do not treat people based on how they treat us. We treat people based on how God has treated us. That we would love one another as Christ loved us. What would, what would a marriage look like? Marriages that are healthy, marriages that are struggling. We all need to hear this. What would a marriage look like if afresh today the husband and the wife would make that choice again? I made a promise, better or worse, and things have gotten a lot worse than I ever thought. But I'm going to make a choice right now. And based on that choice, I'm going to take a step towards my spouse. Not a step away from them and above them in pride, but a step towards them and in humility like Jesus took a step. And I'm going to pay the price. And I understand that I may take that step forward and I might get pushed right back. But I know that I've done that to God. I've pushed him back. And so I am going to 
make that choice. I'm going to take that step, and I am going to pay the price, even if I'm not well-received. I am going to do my part, and I'm going to trust that God is going to work in their heart to do their part. What would, what would happen? What would happen to our children's ministry? If we as a church would just make a choice to say, we're going we're gonna to love the kids in this church. We're going to love the kids in this community. We're going to have so many volunteers to serve in Awana that we can open it up to the whole community and have everyone involved, have hundreds of children come. What if we just made that choice and then took that step and then counted, yeah, it would be nice to have a free Sunday morning or a free Tuesday night. What if we, what if we paid that price? What would it look like? How many shoeboxes would be left if we truly understood how much God loved us? And if we made those choices and took those steps and paid that price, how deep would our friendships become if we started taking those steps towards one another? How strong and robust would our small groups be, not just one night a week getting together for a Bible study and party mix and Sprite, but a real, loving, Christ-centered community where we are taking those steps, paying that price in light of what God has done for us. What would happen if we would take Jesus up on this command that he has given to us? If we would recognize how he has chosen to relate to us and how that should affect the way that we relate to one another. What impact would that have on our church? What impact would that have on our world? Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I jot this down, that when we love one another, we are obeying Jesus' commands, we are following Jesus' example, and lastly, we are proving our discipleship. Jesus says that if we take this command seriously, if we respond appropriately to how God has loved us and allow that to flow out of us into loving other people, that if we do that, we will be an effective witness in the watching world. It says all people will know that you are my disciples. This is how we prove that we're disciples of Jesus Christ. What is the sign of a true disciple? It's not what you or I would say. It's not your hunger for the word of God, as important as that is. It's not your passion for corporate worship, it's not as important as that is. It's not your sacrificial giving. It's not your commitment to serving, as important as those things are. Jesus says what is going to be the strongest witness for us in the world is the love that we have for one another. The choices that we make, the steps that we take, the prices that we're willing to pay. All understanding that God loves us and allowing that love to overflow here in the church and outside the walls of this church as a witness to the world, proving that we are truly his disciples. Would you guys be excited to go to a church where when the preacher spoke, it was like an angel was communicating the very words of God. 
Would you guys like to go to a church where people were speaking prophecies and truth and, and, and declaring these deep theological concepts that no one had understood, even predicting the future sometimes? Would you like to go to a church where people had so much faith and were praying and miracles were happening, people were getting healed? Would you like to go to a church like that? Would you like to go to a church where people give so generously, they actually literally, they don't talk about giving everything they have, they actually did give everything that they have. Would you like to to go to a church where even in the midst of persecution, people were laying down their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ? Would you like to go to that church? I, I think I'd like to go to that church. God doesn't want to go to that church. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I speak in tongues of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It doesn't matter how good the preaching is. It doesn't matter how clearly and articulately God's word goes out. If there's no love in it, it's pointless. It's like my grade six music class. It's just this noisy gong. It's just this clanging cymbal. It's a nightmare. It's just noise. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, none of that matters unless there is love. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if, if the miraculous were happening, it wouldn't matter. But have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's, just, it's so crucial that we get this. It's so crucial that I understand this as a pastor, that my greatest gift to you, that the greatest authentica- uh, authentication of my ministry is not how well I preach or how well I lead or cast vision. It's how well I love. That for our elders and for our staff and for our leaders, for all of us as a church, it's not how many programs we run, it's not how, how good our Sunday morning services are or how strong or impactful our ministries happen to be. It's do we love one another. At the end of the day, that is all that matters. That is the command that Jesus has given to us. And if the world is going to notice anything that we're doing, they're going to notice if we're loving each other. And Jesus shared this with his disciples. And then his disciples went out and made more disciples. And then the Holy Spirit inspired the disciples and the new disciples to author the New Testament. And just about every letter that you see in the New Testament, you have some sort of emphasis on loving one another. The importance of us loving one another. John, who wrote John 13, John, John wrote three other books. That's pretty much all he talks about in the other, the other three books. Love one another, love one another, love one another. And the New Testament gives us this fuller picture of what does it mean to actually love one another. Here's, here's a seven quick ways that the New Testament tells us we're supposed to love each other. The first one is that that love needs to be authentic. It needs to be authentic. It needs to be genuine. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. You can't fake it. We all know people who have told us that they love us or they, they talk in such a loving way, but when the rubber actually hits the road, they're not there for us. And the love has to be genuine. How, listen, you can't force someone to be genuine. You can't force someone to be authentic. The only way you're ever gonna love with a love that's genuine and that's authentic is if you truly understand how much God loves you. That's the only way genuine love would flow out of us if we receive the only truly genuine love that comes from God. The next a form of love is love that's it's, it's like a family. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. 
And uh, my sons are struggling with brotherly affection sometimes. And uh, we as Christians, we struggle with brotherly affection. But here's the thing about my sons. Whether Ezra's fighting with Jet or Jet's fighting with Abel or they're upset with Boaz for some reason, all he does is smile right now. Here's the thing about brotherly affection. I know, I know that no matter what, no matter what bothers them throughout the day, I know that they're always going to be brothers. And they know that they're always going to be brothers. That you can't change that. If they get in a fight with some kid on the playground and choose to never talk to that kid again, well, that's fine. They could just go into some other part of the playground. They, they don't share the same room. If they don't like some kid on their soccer team, they could just move to another soccer team. But you can't move to another family. And brotherly love, the reason why brotherly love is so strong is because you know it's there until the end. There's no opting out. And the other reason why brotherly love is so strong is because there's parents, there's parents loving as well who are making sure that those brothers get along. And we have a father who won't tolerate division between us, who wants us to get together. And I know at times of the deepest conflict that I've ever had with other Christians is the one thing that gave me hope was that I knew God's spirit lived inside of me. And I know that God's spirit lives inside of that brother or that sister. And so I know it's impossible for us to continue to move apart from one another. The spirit won't lead both of us apart. The spirit has to be moving us together. And listen, if you're not experiencing that brotherly affection right now, if there is this significant division within your family or within this church or within another Christian, because this all goes beyond just Harvest Brampton. This goes beyond, this is the universal church is that we have to believe and recognize and understand that the Spirit lives inside of that person or inside of that group and the Spirit lives inside of you. He's not going to lead you apart. He's going to lead you together. And we need to have faith and believe in that brotherly uh, affection. Now here's the, the third one, that it needs to be intense. It needs to be uh, intense. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, keep loving one another Earnestly, that word earnest, that's the word for a, 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 a pot of water that has come to a rolling boil. And it's just, the, the lid on it is shaking back and forth and the steam and the water is spilling out. That's the kind of love that we are supposed to have. Not just some sort of passive, well maybe if I feel like it, kind of a love. It is an intense, determined, all out love. And there have been times in my life, there have been times in this church where I have just seen the intensity of the love that Christians have for one another. I've experienced it personally in my own dark seasons, and I've seen it happen through different trials. I've seen people just run towards people with an intensity when there is a need for someone to have love. The fourth one is that love is always truthful. Ephesians 4.15 says, a speaking the truth in Love. And sometimes love has to say some hard things. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do to someone is to tell them the truth. But you also need to understand that sometimes the truth hurts. And so this isn't just some sort of uh, invitation just to speak your mind. Is that you need to love in such a way. Yes, you need to tell people the truth. But you need to tell it in a way that is tactful, that is kind. And to, to be very sensitive in that way. That leads to the next one is 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 not only truthful, but also helpful. Through love, serve one another. I see a lot of people use Ephesians 4.15. Hey, I'm just speaking the truth in love, man. I'm just telling you what I'm thinking. Well, is it helpful? 
Are you trying to serve that person or are you just trying to vent your frustration? Because there's a huge difference between those things. We're not supposed to let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only what is beneficial for all to hear. And so we need to, and love in our speaking and everything that we do needs to be helpful. We need to be finding ways to practically help one another. And then I love this, love is enduring. It's enduring, Ephesians 4, 2, bearing with one another in love. That means, that means putting up with one another. I'm gonna tell you, man, we're a, we're a weird bunch of people. I mean, Harvest Brampton, we're full of weird people. I'm one of them. And, and, and you thought maybe you joined this church because you're leaving all the weird people behind. No, we're all here too. And, and the church is full of them. And God chose to love them. And we need to choose to love one another, bearing with one another. And in the context there, it's about forgiving as God forgave us. It's it, loving as Christ. So there are going to be times where we misunderstand one another. I guarantee if you continue to go to this church, it won't be much longer until someone in this church seriously hurts you. It's going to happen. Someone will let you down. Someone will misunderstand what you said and accuse you wrongly of something. It is only a matter of time. Someone will let you down. Someone will disappoint you. There will be a time where you need someone to shower on the earnest love and it's not even simmering. It's lukewarm. It's freezing cold. It will happen. But our love, there needs to be a commitment to bearing with one another, putting up with one another, everything that makes us so different and so unique and all the times where we let one another down. God is so glorified when we love and bear with one another. And then I love this, it's increasing. First Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. More love for the church, more love for other believers, more love today than yesterday. More love tomorrow than today. God, may, I, may this time next year, may I be so much more overflowing with my love for other believers than I have this year. But how is that gonna happen? Our love will only increase for other people if our understanding of God's love for us also increases. That's why in the rest of the Gospels, what Jesus does next is so important because they're in the upper room. Judas is on his way to betray Jesus and they're sharing the Passover meal. And Jesus is about to take bread and he's about to take a cup and he's about to say, this is my body which is given for you. And he said, this is, this is my blood which is shed for you. And then he's gonna say, do this in remembrance of me. And this has been happening uh, in the church for decades and decades and centuries and centuries across the globe and across the years. This is something that Christians have done together and it's so important that we practice this together. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You need to love one another as I have loved you and here is a reminder to show you how much I love you. Here's the choice I made. Here's the price I paid. Here's the step that I took 
Because our love for one another will only increase if our understanding of how much Jesus loves us will increase also. And so let's bow our heads and pray. We're going to prepare to receive the Lord's Supper now. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.